So here's what we're going to talk about today. Of course, we're talking about the blessedness of fearing the Lord. And we've worked through on the first week the idea of what it means to fear the Lord. And so just if you're a guest here, when we say the word fear the Lord, we're looking at the full nuance of it in Scripture. And when you hear the word fear the Lord, there's a nuance of an understanding of there's one part of that 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 is this idea of you should be afraid, very afraid. Uh, If you're a Christian of his hand of discipline for disobedience, if you're not in Christ, you should be afraid of the wrath of God that is on you until you have repented of your sin and placed faith in Christ. You should. That's an element that we want to we want to we want to tell you that's real. You should. And then there's also an element of the fear of God that is a reverence and awe for God for who he is as you learn more about what he's like. These two elements richly in the totality of in scripture, you find this awe and worship and reverence mixed with this afraid of his hand of discipline that brings together in this robust understanding of the fear of the Lord. In week one, we, uh, we looked at this idea of what that word means and over and over in scripture, it's called a blessed life. It's a joyous life. It's a good thing. The fear of the Lord is good. Then we looked at week two about the idea of sinful fear, like really in the line of the fear of man. A lot of the things we do in life is there's a fear of man and not a fear of God. The greater our fear of the Lord, the less our fear of man. And the greater our fear of God, the more we trust God. And which also conversely, we also, when we're walking in sinful fear in relation to man, we trust man more than we should. Then we looked last week at Mother's Day and we looked at one aspect of God's character, his sovereignty, and how that plays into the Proverbs 31 wife, woman. But then also this idea of God's sovereignty helps us not to live in the land of what ifs. When there's, when there's a sinful kind of fear, we live in the land of what ifs. We worry. We have worry and anxiety. And today we're going to finish off looking at some of God's attributes, the blessings of fearing the Lord. So we're going to build on that idea of God's sovereignty but I also want to build out a couple things about his character. And that's his goodness, his holiness, his love that points us to redemption. So we're going to look at those attributes of God. By the way, we could look at more. Um, and, you know, so we could extend the fear of God series for probably another 10 weeks, 12 weeks, maybe 13, 14, 15. You know how it goes. But I think we'll be able to land it today. So I want to take a look at a couple things when it comes to God's attributes, what he's like, because that actually informs the fear of the Lord. There's a scripture that we pointed over to you many, many times. It's in Philippians 4. If you want to turn to it, I want to read this to you. We read it last week, and I want to point out, because sometimes I, I, I probably almost daily, at least once a day, sometimes multiple times a day, it seems, I will quote this Philippians 4, 8 verse to people. Philippians 4, 8. And it says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, the context actually has to do with combating anxiety and living in God's peace, but I tell people all the time, what, what you want to do is replace your thoughts with thoughts, Philippians 4, 8 thoughts. And sometimes people say, well, what can that be? Well, that can be a lot of things. It can be focusing on uh, different things that are good in life and blessings in your life from an earthly standpoint. 
But if you want to also add a kind of a, another thought to think about, I would say, think about the attributes of God. Think about what he's like. Look, go, go back to Isaiah 40 we talked about last week and be amazed at the sovereign power of the, what the one true God is like. Be amazed that, um, <laughs> that back in you know, Isaiah 40, that all the water in the planet is he can hold in the hollow of his hand. Go home and take a, a measuring spoon and see how much water you can hold just in your hand like this. It's probably going to be less than a tablespoon. And that is and that is equivalent to what all the water on the planet, which is two-thirds, and up to six miles deep, and God can hold all that as nothing and just the hollow of his hand. That's how sovereign, that's how powerful, that's how ginormous he is. All right, that's that's how unlimited he is. So we talked about him being sovereign. He has all power. And in his sovereignty, he can do what he wants, when he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. There is no one that rivals an idea of a sovereign God. You and I are not sovereign. I can't even do the things I want to do, right? Have you ever been there? You and I definitely are not sovereign. We think we are. We are not. How do you know you're not sovereign? Well, you'll, you'll probably know that if you try not to eat that one snack at midnight and you find yourself walking through the kitchen and giving in, guess what? You're not that sovereign, right? You don't even do the things you don't want to do. You're not that sovereign. You may think, I'm going to wake up and a little bit earlier, okay? I'm going to, instead of hitting the alarm button multiple times where now I'm racing to work or I'm racing to get my computer booted up because we all work from home now, right? That, that you, and then you keep hitting it, hitting it, hitting it and kind of roll in late. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. I will not do this tomorrow. I will wake up earlier. I will not be stressed out and blood pumping as I'm driving to work. I'm not going to do that anymore. Only to do what? The next day, repeat, rinse and repeat the cycle again. Why is that? Because we're not that sovereign. We really aren't. But the Lord is. Everything he's ever wanted to do, he does. Everything he's planned comes to fruition. He is that sovereign. And when we believe he's that sovereign, that powerful, that profoundly affects the idea of understanding the fear of the Lord, right? He's that sovereign that he brings all discipline to pass as that is right and just for our good and his glory, but then also his character and what he's like. That's how powerful this God is. So God's sovereignty is a huge piece. Like, what do you want to think about? What should you think about? Think about a sovereign God, Philippians 4, 8. Think about things. Think about these things. Things would be God's character, I remember reading years ago, John Piper, uh, his mom had died in a tragic car accident while his mom was uh, on vacation in Israel, right? And so what happened is they were on a tour bus, and then the tour bus got hit. His mom was in it. Um, there, was some, there was some kind of like a log or some kind of like um, two-by-four that went through the windshield of the tour bus that her, his mom was on in Israel, on a tour in Israel, and it killed her. And he remembers in, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, he says, I remember people were saying things such as, well, that's just terrible that the devil did that. You know, that was the devil's fault. The devil did that. And John, MacArthur, um, John Piper says, I took no comfort in thinking that the devil could just do whatever he wanted to my mom. In the end, I was only comforted that there was a sovereign God who had decreed and decided that this was her time. And in that, I weeped, but in that, I was okay. So I would tell you, a fear of the Lord has to accompany 
knowing what the one true God is like. And not knowing imperfection, that's impossible, but knowing from what the scriptures talk about. So last week we talked about the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 40, I would encourage you to keep resting your soul in that. But I want to look at now some next things. I want to look now at his goodness. So go over to Psalm chapter 46, his goodness. You can believe that God is sovereign, but if you don't believe that he's good, you'll have a trouble with his sovereignty. You'll, I mean, it's frightening to think that God would be sovereign and not be benevolent towards us. I love Psalm chapter 46 and verse 1 through 3. We see this. There's an absolute recognition of how sovereign God is, but also how good he is. And in the midst of this, you can see that the psalmist here fears the Lord and fears the Lord appropriately. So one of the things about believing that a God is that powerful, you have to believe he's good. I told you the story last week, and if you weren't here, I'm glad you didn't hear the story because it's terrible. I closed this last week with telling you about something, probably the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. And I'm not going to tell you again because maybe you'll go back and listen. But one of the things undergirding what I did, and that story I told you when we closed off, was I didn't believe God was sovereign, and in his sovereignty, I didn't believe he was actually good. I believe the definition of good was what Nick decided regarding the birth of his, his first child. My definition of good. God has his own definition of good, and his definition is always, uh, is always right. That's part of, the, of being a sovereign God. So goodness. Now, look at Psalm 46 and verse 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. Can we all say amen to that? Doesn't that show God's goodness, right? He is a strength and a place to run, a protection, of refuge. He helps. He's a present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, verse 2. Love it. Great. God's good. But also now look at this. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Think about that. What's interesting is, do you kind of notice the end of verse 2 and 3? That doesn't sound very good. I mean, I don't know about you, but the earth gives way, although the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. I'm pretty sure Memphis would be underwater, right? We're all going to live in Colorado. Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now that's... That's something sovereign. Only a sovereign God could do. That would be, this would be only something powerful. But before he even thinks that, there's this acknowledgement. He's our refuge, our strength, a help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear what will happen because we'll ultimately fear him. So, I mean, just, I want you to notice, even God's goodness has to be understood in the midst of his sovereignty. And in the midst of his sovereignty... Sometimes things may not work out the way you always thought and designed, but to know that he's good in that sovereignty, you can now rest and not fear. That's what the psalmist is saying. I don't fear what's going to happen. The story I told you last week when I was living in the most, when I said the stupidest thing ever and couldn't catch it in the air before I said it, I remember that part of the heart of getting down to what was going on is I knew that God was sovereign, but I didn't really trust his sovereignty because I didn't think he was good. And once I came to the understanding that God was good, then I trusted his sovereignty. I I could go that like, God, whatever you decide with this child, 
If this child has a health complication, if this child doesn't make it past the first day, whatever you decide with this child, I I don't have to call the situation good, but you are still good. What you've decided for your glory is still good. I had to come to that. To not believe that God as sovereign, to recognize his sovereignty, but not undergird yourself with the truth of his character, that he's also good, will leave you in a position of fearing Fearing, the, fearing God in a way that's not the way the Scriptures promote. The Scriptures promote a way of fearing God that leads us into trusting Him more. If our fear of God leads us away from trusting God even more, then the fear we have in that moment is not theologically accurate. Get this. The fear of the Lord drives us to a greater trust in God. If your fear of the Lord does not drive you to a greater trust in God, then friend, revisit your theological understanding of what God is like. You are not capturing the essence of what true, the true sovereignty of God means for the, for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. His goodness. We take solace in that, which is amazing. And our fear of the Lord is I'm in awe of Him and I... And I even look at his disciplined hand. His hand of discipline on us is even good. I mean, if you're here today and maybe there's been deceitful sin in your life and God has exposed it or maybe you've confessed it or, or maybe you, mean you, you told enough lies that the, the lies couldn't calculate enough and that eventually it just was exposed at work or wherever, right? And, and you might go, man, huh, it was terrible. But the... The fear of the Lord actually will drive you to say that's good. You know, the fear of the Lord, and it's really great because if you've been in those situations where you just lied, 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 and you were bound in shackles by your sin, and then the truth came out, do you remember how freeing that was? Where finally there was an honesty that could come. Finally you could, finally you confessed. Finally you got to enjoy, here's what you got to enjoy, the goodness of God in the midst of his discipline. You got to experience what it's like to be forgiven. You got to experience what it's like to have an opportunity for heart change and life change. The sovereignty of God is understood best by us when we understand that he's good. Even if the situation looks bad in Psalm 46, verse 3, he's still saying he's good. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear what God's sovereignty will do. So you have to have his goodness. You've got to believe that. And by the way, you have every right to to even think this, right? The work of the cross. If you thought for one millisecond that God was not good, the cross tells you you're absolutely wrong. It does, right? It does. That's your justification, that he rose from the dead. God accepted his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice. God put his righteousness on your account, took away your sin, put God's righteousness I mean, that's your, that's, that's your receipt to go, okay, then like, it, it, I, he is good. Like, I don't doubt that he's good. If he wasn't good, he wouldn't have sent his son. If he wasn't good, he wouldn't have sacrificed his son. If he wasn't good, he wouldn't have risen his son from the grave. That's, our, that's why we want to keep rehearsing the gospel. We want to keep taking communion. I want you to keep fellowshipping and discipling. I want you to keep looking at the gospel message. So next we find this, the blessings of fearing the Lord, it's a robust pushing towards his sovereignty, a robust pushing towards the, his goodness that exists as a part of his sovereignty. But then also, I want us to think about his holiness. And a lot of our songs sung about God's holiness. 
And I want you to notice something about the songs we sung about God's holiness. It's nuanced, his holiness. And when I say nuanced, most of the time, and especially if you come from more of a Baptistic background, when you hear the holiness of God, the thought we typically have, which is a true thought, mind you, we hear holiness and we go, he's separated, which is true. That's what the word holy, it means separated, cut off. It means he is completely separated from sin, morally, right? He does not morally sin and he has moral excellence, both sides, right? The negative and positive. He doesn't sin negative in a negative way and he has moral excellence, like, like he is completely righteous in all that he does. So we hear the word holy, we think, okay, he's separated from sin. Holiness means God wants me to be separated from sin. And to that I say, yes and amen. But I also would tell you, if that's the only thought about holiness you have, then we have missed a robust biblical teaching about the holiness of God. I want you to notice in some of the songs that we sang, you saw the conversation of sin related to God's holiness, but also you see that there were conversations in these songs about the transcendent majesty of God, his glory, right? You, you saw that as a part of his holiness, right? So there's these two elements that exist when it comes to the holiness of God. And if a robust understanding of the holiness of God is not a part of our of us understanding the attribute of God, we, we will not fear him appropriately. We won't live in this life of the blessings of fearing the Lord. Let me layer this out. First, I just want to prove to you that the scriptures really are all about um, a, a holy God and us living in light of his holiness. Look in 2 Corinthians. Let's just flip a couple things and then we're going to go to Isaiah 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 says this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, now contextually, the holiness in question is really talking about that of a moral nature of holiness. We're to say no to sin. We're to be living temples of God in Second Corinthians chapter 6. So we see that this holiness does, this holiness that lives in the fear of God, it, this does have to do with kind of the moral sense, which is true and accurate. It means that because God is completely separated from sin, we should live a life in light of that. He lived a perfect life. And not that we're going to live a perfect life, but that perfect life has been put on our account. And so what we are positionally in Christ, we can now start to live out practically. Does that mean that I'm going to be perfect and never sin? No, but it does mean that I'm to live a sanctified life, that the most normal thing for me to do in life is to say no to sin and yes to God. Part of, part, part of the whole work of the cross is I am dead to sin and alive to God. I don't have to go back living in the grave clothes. I can live in the grace clothes. And so we find in verse 7, 1, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The greater someone fears God, the truly fears a holy God, they fight sin even more. And that involves the idea of the fear of discipline, but also the fear of understanding what he's really like as a holy God. So when we see that propositionally, that, that's a truth, that God is holy and has called us to live out a morally holy life. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to show you this in another place, just so you understand this, this is not a foreign concept. The fear of the Lord is attached to holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, the text says, 
But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. For if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. You're in exile as a Christian. You, you're, you're not home yet. And, and since coming to Christ, we live in the fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord means that we fear his holiness. He is holy. We should live a holy life. Not because we're earning our righteousness, because the righteousness of Christ on our account. We live holy lives, lives that are separated from the negative side of immorality. Jesus never once sinned. He showed us a complete picture of what normal is. God's holy nature. God showed through the Ten Commandments and His law to Israel what a holy God is like. So there's this moral side to the holiness of God. When, when we sin, we are doubting the holy nature of God. And when we doubt the holy nature of God, we are not living in the fear of the Lord. What's interesting, though, is, is the two-sidedness of that holiness moral side. There's the negative side, which I would say would be the God doesn't sin, right? So he is far separated from sin. But there's also a positive side to understanding this moral nature of God according to holiness. It's the positive side that not only does he not sin and is far from it, and, not even, and he's, not even circu- he's not even circling the landing pad of it, but also it's his... His moral purity and excellence is supreme. It's kind of like this. Take one little grain of sand, right? I'm going to go outside and I could pick up one little grain of sand. I'm, I'm sure if I dig in my pocket, I could probably find one, right? Just one little grain of sand, right? And let's pretend that is my moral excellence, right? There it is, that one little grain of sand. And then compare that to every grain of sand that exists on the planet, So that's the positive aspect of the holiness of God. Not only is he unsullied from sin, but his purity and excellence and that he always does right and his perfection compared to my perfection is ginormously huge in comparative. Now, when we start looking at the holiness of God, we got to understand that he is so separated from sin that he has nothing to do with it. But then he is also so morally pure, so holy that his righteousness exceeds anything that I could even dare come close. My righteousness compels in comparison to anything of what he's like. So that's this one aspect of the holiness of God. It's the moral aspect. We see this in scripture. It's promoted. But also there's this other aspect that we can't forget is there's this majestic... um, There's this majestic part of his holiness. Go to Isaiah 6. I'll show this to you. Isaiah chapter 6. There's this majestic transcendence. Now remember the word holy means cut off separate. It means that God is holy other. God is holy other from his creation, from man before sin entered into the world, after sin, creation itself, God is holy other. He is absolutely distinct from all of his creatures, infinitely exalted above them in his incomprehensible glory and majesty. So when we think of the holiness of God, we not only think he is separate from sin uh, in such a way that he doesn't ever do it, and that he has such moral excellence that's high above in any compare that we could do, but then also a part of that holiness is he is majestically transcendent. 
He is above. He is greater. He, there is nothing that can compare to him. He is that holy. Isaiah chapter 6. King Uzziah had just died and Isaiah says this in chapter 6 verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting. By Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is in a time and place in southern Judah. We talked talk this about the minor prophets there walking in rebellion. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. They each had wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. All right? And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to notice, when we start to understand the holiness of God, he is separate from sin morally. He has moral excellence. But also, he is holy other. He is magnificent and majestic. He is infinite. He is far above. He is immeasurable. He is unlimited. When we hear the holiness of God, we've got to think these these dual aspects that complete the, the, the look at holiness. And I would tell you this. The fear of the Lord in our life robustly grows when we understand both prongs of that. It seems like sometimes when we understand the holiness of God, it's only the the moral excellence part, and I would say yes and amen to that, then also there's the, the awe and wonder that's a part of the fear of the Lord. That comes from that idea of his majestic transcendent, right? Remember I talked to you about the fear of the Lord? There's these two elements. There's the afraid part of your sin. Then there's the what he's like, awe, wonder, majesty. When we think of the holiness of God in Scripture, we're painted a picture of these both aspects, not of the moral purity, but he is high above he is separated. He is different from, from all creation, every creature. Even the angels know it. Look in the text. So these angels cover their face and cover their feet and are flying around. And, and everybody's kind of thinks, so it's because they know they're sinners. But in the text, these angels aren't decrying their sinners. These aren't fallen angels. They're not decrying their sin. They are admitting to, that God is holy, holy, holy. Three times they're crying out, just like David read earlier in Revelation chapter 4. And what are they doing in this? They're not decrying their sin. They're, these are not fallen angels. They don't have a human sinful nature like us. These are creatures. This, we're not dealing with that aspect in this at this moment. We're dealing with he is the, the whole earth is full of his glory. Everything is about him. He is the center point, right? That's what they're saying. When you look over at Revelation 4 that David read earlier, you see that the angels are decrying the holiness of God. But part of the holiness in that text is they're also decrying the transcendent majesty of the one true God. Now, notice this. So Isaiah sees this, verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, when you understand the holiness of God, I think this text really brings it to us because not only are we seeing the transcendent majesty, which by the way, if you're thinking, Nick, did you come up with that on your own? Nope. 
That was R.C. Sproul, right? So, like, that wasn't my own observation. But I will say this. Look at this idea. So Isaiah sees this. He sees, the, he sees that part of his holiness, the angels are decrying his transcendent majesty. Holy, holy, holy to the triune God. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah says, I'm a sinner. I am morally impure compared to this holy God. This majestic God is also a holy God. This majestic God is separate from everything creaturely that he's created. He is transcendently high above it. But then also he's high above sin. And I am an unclean man. And in fact, the filth that's around me in the southern kingdom of Judah, it's filth. I'm dirty. He's seeing the full orbed understanding of the holiness of God. And he is fearing the Lord at this moment. And by the way, he was a prophet. What's probably the one thing that prophets and preachers use a lot of? Yeah, I, you might be thinking their brain. No, we don't use those. Our mouth, right? It's our mouth. I mean, that's what we use. That's what we speak. Notice this. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. The very thing that even I use, the very giftings that I have, is unclean. And the people are unclean. Then he says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he might take, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. He brings these coals that have been attached and used to burn the sacrifice, pointing to the greater sacrifice. All these Old Testament sacrifices point to the greater sacrifice to come. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atone for. So Isaiah says, I can't clean myself. I can't clean my mouth up. I can't compare to this holy God. He is transcendently majestic above and holy other. And he is also morally excellent and morally clean. I can't do anything. And what has to happen? He has to be atoned for, right? And uh, what a great picture. So even us today, living in the fear of the Lord, you need atonement. That's what you need. Like, man, how do, you, how do you reconcile this God that is morally pure and calls you to this and this God that is majestic and um, unlimited and high above? Well, you have to know redemption. You have to know atonement. Even this is happening for Isaiah, pointing us ultimately to the coming day when the Messiah would come. So when you look at the idea of holiness, I think in Isaiah 6, you see this idea that if they come together, that they... Come together when we fear the Lord. We have to understand that he's holy. And it's not only the sin, but it's also the majesty. And I'm telling you, if you don't, if we don't have that, we won't say no to sin and yes to God. We won't be able to fight anxiety. We won't be able to fight the fear of man. In most of our lives, we think man has this unlimited sovereignty. When there's something that happens at work and that something immoral has happened, and it's even your boss, and you're afraid to talk to your boss about it because you're afraid what your boss could do to you. What's, what are we really revealing in that moment? That God's not holy enough. We're acting like our boss has this transcendent majesty of which he or she does not. Do you understand? I mean, there's this dual understanding of what the holiness of God is. And the greater we understand what the holiness of God and walk in his holiness, the more we will fear God, the less we will fear man. Even the idea that even for some of us, 
sin is so such a struggle in our lives, isn't it? There could be such deceitful sin that it's like rinse and repeat. You feel like you keep going back to the pig slop so much, right? And you're wondering like, Lord, will I ever be delivered from this? Like I ask you, Lord, I pray. I seek you. I pray. Why am I not delivered from this, God? Well, it might be that you're not fully understanding the holiness of God and your fear of the Lord. You may just see the moral perspective, but you don't have a big vision of what this God is actually capable of. I mean, where do we ever get thinking that a God who who takes on human flesh and suffers the wrath of God in our place is not a God that can actually help you say no to sin and yes to him? Where do we ever think such a thing? So we see that the holiness of God drives up the fear of the Lord in our life. And, and we don't, I mean, even when we don't fear sin, when we sin and think, well, God's just going to wink his eye at it, then we don't really think he's holy. We don't. we don't. We don't fear his moral excellence, that he actually would discipline us in his love. Now, last is this. If, so we know his goodness, his, um, his goodness, his holiness. These are attributes of God that drive up a true understanding of the fear of the Lord, the nuances of the fear of the Lord in our life. And it's a blessed life. I long for the day that we could say to each other, oh, there is such and such. Well, they really fear the Lord. You just don't hear people say that anymore. What a blessing that would be to, what if, what if a wife could say to a husband, you know what I notice about you? You fear the Lord. Or a husband could say to a wife, she fears the Lord. Or your children could say, you could say to your children, you know what I love about my child is they have a fear of the Lord. And we want to sanitize that out and go, ooh, let's not say that because we might paint God in the full orb of what his attributes are. Let's just make him the kind grandpa that winks at all of our sin and he's okay with it. No, let's actually go back and go robustly. By the way, not giving a plug for the LSB, but I might as well. In some places they use the fear, the word fear, instead of, instead of I guess, you know, trying to make it more culturally acceptable and using the word reverence. Although that's not bad. That's one aspect that God's, you know, but I think, I think when referencing God, fear is a really good word, and it's up to the interpreter to study the scriptures and come to the full orb understanding. But I digress. Let's end with this. Y'all okay? Okay, let's go to Psalms. Psalms 130. So Psalms 130, we, we find this in Psalm 130. So, the blessings of fearing the Lord, we've got the sovereignty of God last week. We built on it the goodness of God, the holiness of God, but also the love of God. Like, if you believe he's sovereign, and you believe he's good, and you believe he's holy, but you don't have this idea of that he actually, there's actually, there's love, and that his love is not, and by the way, his love is not predicated on how lovely we are, but his, his love for his own glory, then, then like it's going to be hard to fear the Lord appropriately. Look at Psalm chapter 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Like, Lord, if, 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 if our sins are left to stand, man, if you mark it in such a way that it's never forgiven. But it says this, but with you there is forgiveness... That you may be feared. You may be feared. 
So the fear of God will drive us to the love of God. The love of God helps us to fear God. The love of God is, is what shows us that we don't, in this sovereignty and holiness and goodness, I mean, there's a, someone who has that kind of absolute sovereign rule and power, and we don't believe that they have love, that's going to be a very hard existence to worship that kind of a God. I'm brought to you, go over to Romans chapter 5. This should be the last scripture we turn, around, we turn to, Romans 5. And I want to point your, 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 your nose back to, and your eyes back to the love of God. And what's awesome about the love of God is it absolutely doesn't make sense. There's one thing I know that does not make sense, and it's God's love. It mathematically does not add together. When I look at the heinousness of my own sin, when you get a vision of God's holiness, his, not only his, his, how far away he is from sin from the negative side, but how, how, what the moral excellence he has that he's far superior and righteous, and you see the majestic transcendence of what he's like, well then, man, it's really hard to think I deserve this. You know, life really changed for me when I stopped thinking I deserve salvation and started to realize I never deserved it to begin with. And my theology went from a very man-centered theology that it was this idea of like, Jesus would have died if it was just for old Nick. And I would say, no, that's, that's kind of putting God at a, at a level that I don't think Scripture puts him and rather putting him that God saves Nick for the glory of his name, for the exaltation of who he is, so that much could be made of his name and that Nick could enjoy him forever and fear him. Boy, life really changed. He started to become the center point of all things. And then his love stopped being something for me to consume on myself as if I deserved it. And I started to see the, that his love was actually something that was brought to me completely undeserving. And then, man, it drove up the fear of God in my life. The, the more I saw his holiness, the less I saw my deserving of anything. And the more I saw that, actually, it drew up the fear of God. Look in Romans 5. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Which, just a side note. Oh, he died for you because you were such a good person. No, he didn't. We were ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Meaning, some probably wouldn't die for people, even if they're righteous, would die for somebody else. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. The writer Paul is calling in the question that, would you even die for, I mean, most of us wouldn't even die for a person who would be considered, quote, a good person. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I love about the, this idea of the, the blessings of fearing the Lord. To get an under, to, to, to start glimpsing at His sovereignty, to start glimpsing at His goodness, to start getting a glimpse of the, the fully orbed nuance of the holiness of God from His majestic transcendence to His absolute moral unstainedness and moral superiority, having all those things packaged together, I cannot mathematically add up why I am loved. There is nothing love. When I look at my sin in light of his holiness, God is inexcusable if I died and went to a devil's hell. I, I, I would. I say devil's hell, the most fearful thing in hell is actually the wrath of God. That's another sermon for another day. I'm astounded by it. And here's his love. 
when it did not make sense from an earthly perspective. It does not add up. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. So if I'm completely unrighteous, can't save myself, doing wrong, he dies for me. There's all the fear of God in my life, man. That like, why, what would I not fear this God? Like, why would I not praise this God? This God exists on a level that, that, that I don't even comprehend. So it's kind of like this. Let's say that on your way to work, there's certain intersections that you go to and someone's going to be asking you for money, right? They're going to have a cardboard box of some kind of, you know, note, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you know you're faced with a decision at that point. Okay, am I going to give them money or not? The, the typical thing that runs behind all of our minds is, well, they're just probably going to go use it for booze or drugs, or better yet, they're probably just going to an hour later go walk over to their BMW, right? I mean, we, do we understand the, the, the thing that we're struggling with here? Well, let's say that you had decided every day on going to work, you made sure you always had cash in your car, and every day you gave that person a dollar, and you just did it because you were like, Lord, that's not my call, that's yours. I'm called to generosity, I'm going to do it. And let's say you kept doing that for years and years, day after day. And then you find out, after a couple years, you decide you get off work early one day and see that person walking across the parking lot and getting into a really nice car. We're pretty upset with that, aren't you? Right? Pretty upset. The next day, when you, when you, drive, when you drive and hit that red light, you're probably going to sneer at that person, maybe roll down your window, maybe give them the what for. But, the, but what you probably wouldn't do is roll down the window and have a conversation, let them know that you love them, that you forgive them. Because the thought in that moment would be, they don't deserve that. They took and took and took from me. How dare they? It wouldn't make sense for you to do that, would it? You know, it wouldn't even make sense. <laughs> As if you tried to hand them a couple more bucks. You would think, that is ridiculous, Nick. That does not mathematically add up. It doesn't. And that's the love of God. Doesn't add up. Doesn't add up. Not because of how great I am, or you. Because he is, in his holiness, transcendently majestic. Far above. It's always been about his glory. And the people who fear the Lord are people who have that kind of perspective. The love of God has changed us. The love of God brings me to confess my sin, to repent of my sin. The love of God... And here's what I love as we're kind of ending this. So here's the deal. God is so loving in His attributes that it's not like we took all these steps to get to God. God's the one that took all the steps towards us. That's how it is. That's really... If you take Christianity and every other religion on the planet, here's the difference. Every other religion, you're climbing up the mountain to earn a spot near God. Christianity, God comes down from the mountaintop to where you are. And if you're not in Christ, that's the truth of why this is the true God you want to worship. But I'll end with this. If you are in Christ and you have walked so far away from Christ and you're wondering, how can I ever get back and near him? There's a great quote that I, that I read from a guy named Wayne Mack. He says this, No matter how many steps you have taken away from God, it's only one step back. Only one step back. 
and those that live and walk in a fully orbed understanding of the fear of the Lord. When you understand that, you'll know that it's just one step back. Just one step. Just one turn. Would you stand with me as we prepare to take communion and sing to the Lord? We're going to sing, and while we're singing, we're going to pass out the communion elements. I'm going to come up and lead us through. Father, would you bless? Now there's a time of self-examination. If we're far from Christ, may we take this worthily. May we confess our sin, and may we trust in the good news that through your loving grace you've forgiven us. You have satisfied your own justice. And then if there's someone here who's never confessed Jesus as Lord and King, may this be their day. May they be able to actually take communion with us in the next moment. May they, may they call out to you to forgive them of their sin, place their faith in the finished work of the cross. Lord, would you do that as we sing and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and remember the good news. Amen.